Is your loved one suffering from drug addiction or alcoholism? Hope is Alive is an organization with a proven track record of helping addicted men and women radically change their lives. With 20 plus homes across the U.S., Hope is Alive Sober Mentoring Program provides safe, structured, and faith-based environments where men and women can truly change. In fact, over 80% of the residents who complete the 18-month program celebrate a fully recovered life. If you or someone you love is ready to make a change, Hope is Alive is your next step. For more information, visit hopeisalive.net. I remember just thinking, um, I don't want to live anymore. When I was like, you know, 17, 18 is when I first started drinking. I remember I told my mom and dad for the last time, like, hey, I need help. And I actually mean it this time. That's for those of you listening, whether you're a resident in the program, whether you're a family member, a current or a future supporter. But life today is good. When I was seeing it work in other people as well as myself, something just changed. I've got a little over five years of sobriety. This is the Hope Dealers Podcast. And welcome back to the Hope Dealers Podcast. Here we are, episode 15. Can you believe we've already done 15 of these? It is truly amazing. Thank you all so much for listening, as usual. Today, I've got a very special guest here. I've got our one of our recruiting and outreach coordinators, Mr. Brandon Howland. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm great, man. Thank you so much for being here. Brandon, you work on our recruiting and outreach team. Can you explain what that means? Um... At the end of the day, our basic responsibility is to make sure that the beds are filled. But um, we're really on the front lines of everything, you know. Right. It's kind of um, when a drug addict or an alcoholic wants to get help, you know, we're the people they talk to. Gotcha. We provide them resources, whether they need to go to detox or they need to go to inpatient treatment or... (sighs) You know, just even talking to the family members, you know, the mothers that call and they're desperate and hopeless. And yeah, so brass tacks, basically, when someone speaks, like when you call the hope line, it's Brandon and his team that pick up, essentially. Yes. So it'll be funneled to one of our phones. Um, so essentially, we're the the voice for HIA, so to speak, you know, when people call us. Right. Um, or if, if somebody fills out an application, you're the one who calls back. Right. Maybe not always you, but you or somebody that you work with. Right. So we kind of have the privilege of being um, the ones that get to represent HIA. You know, when they think like, well, I called HIA the other day and that woman on the phone, she was so sweet and so knowledgeable, you know, or, you know, in a reverse effect, if we have a bad experience, they'll be thinking like, oh, that guy was a jerk. Right. You know, he didn't help me at all. So, so it's very, all, very important to, you know, represent yourself in the organization yes, in the best way possible. It's, it's a serious deal. Right. That's awesome, man. So how long have you been working at Hope is Alive? Since May. May. Okay. And you, but you're still a resident. Still a resident. Still in the program. Still in the program. And if I remember correctly, you didn't start off in Oklahoma City. You were in Claremore? Claremore, that is correct. Yep. Okay. And that was your first Hope is Alive home? Yes. Okay. And you came to Oklahoma City, joined the team. Yes. Living here now. Um, 
for our viewers and those who don't know you like I do, can you kind of just give us a little background about how you came up and, you know, what really led you through the doors of Hope Was Alive? Well, um, I don't know how deep you want me to go, but, um, you know, I was kind of born into drug addiction and alcoholism. Yeah. You know, my parents, they were, they were hopeless. Um, they couldn't really take care of themselves, let alone children. Right. You know, so, um, I was kind of just introduced to that culture immediately. Yeah. Um, you know, there were a lot of fun times as a kid, I could say, you know, with the parents being drunk and staying up all night, listening to Leonard Skinner and, um, you know, it kind of, uh, those were cool memories, you know, just being kids. Um, but there was a lot of domestic violence sure, and a lot of cops being called mm. and, you know, I had two brothers, we all had different dads. And so, uh, the routine would be, um, you know, one of our dads would be in the house and they'd be trying to have a relationship with our mother. And it was basically centered around drugs and alcohol. So once they started fighting, one dad would move out or go to jail. Another dad would slide in, uh, you know, just a constant shuffle. A lot of, a lot of uh, pretty dysfunctional, you would say? Yeah, extremely. Like, um, Looking back, you know, being where I'm at now, I could tell how immature and just incapable um, they were as human beings, you know? Yeah. It's like they didn't even, even if they wanted to be good parents, they didn't have the ability to. Right. You know, they were just so far gone, you know, and just, um, they had no guidance themselves, nor did they have the drive or the desire to even figure out how to be, you know, functioning good parents. Yeah. So, uh, I think that went on till I was about six or seven, six or seven. Yeah. yeah and then my grandmother, um, she realized how unsafe of an environment it was. And so she got emergency custody of me. Um, she moved me from Wichita, Kansas, uh, down to, um, North Tulsa. It was North Tulsa at first. Um, we stayed in this little shack, uh, that had been kind of converted into like a one bedroom efficient efficiency apartment. So, I mean, it was quite the culture shock, you know, it's like, I was living with my mom and I had my brothers to play with. And then all of a sudden I'm living with this old woman, you know, she's a hoarder, poor, uh, just house full of roaches and, uh, you know, it sucked. Yeah. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, you know, from the time you were born, you never really had any guidance. No, you didn't really have any direction. No. The only thing that really seemed normal to you around you was uh, parties. And that was like the only, as you said yourself, like that's the only good memories that you had at the time. Like that seemed like fun. Yeah. Even when I was living with my mom, you know, she pretty much gave me freedom to do whatever I want. I remember I was like, you know, five years old or something. And I would stay at my friend's house down the street for like four or five days in a row. You know, I remember I came home one day and she had drawn a picture of me and, um, she said, 
you know, you've been gone for so long, I forgot what you look like. So I drew a picture of you just so I could remember. Jeez. And so I was like, you know, it didn't really ring to me at the time, you know, what that meant. But looking back, it's like, you know, it's different than it is today. Like back then I would just go down by the creek or ride my bike wherever, you know, just be out all day and no cell phones, no way to track me around. And I feel like today, you know, everybody's real hesitant or skeptical about just letting their children roam around town. Rightfully so. Yeah, it's a little different. It's when I was a kid, you know, going outside and playing with friends in the neighborhood was just kind of the norm. Yeah, it was it was very like, you know, I'm going to go down to so and so's house Uh and uh, I'll be back by dinner. I guess. Yeah. What are y'all going to be doing? I have no idea. We're going to play outside, play some street hockey, shoot yes. some hoops. Wall go. ball. Yeah. Tomlin Derby. Yeah. Well, let's not go down that rabbit hole because that's definitely something we could talk about for a while. So <clears throat> what's high school like? Ooh. Okay. So, um, you know, when I first got moved in with my grandmother, um, I did pretty well at school, you know. Um, I was in gifted and talented classes. Um, I was in the chess club. Um, just real bright, you know, tested 1% of my class. Yeah. Um, full of potential. She got me enrolled in um, Taekwondo because I didn't really have any friends or no family, you know, no, no kind of, uh, I had no relationships, you know, it was just me and, yeah. my, me and my grandmother. <clears throat> so she got me into Taekwondo. Um, I excelled at that. Eventually got my black belt. Um, I won the junior Olympics two years in a row, I think. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I had, I was a pretty good kid. And, uh, I think once I got around, um, 12 or 13 years old, I think seventh grade, I started getting in trouble a lot. I was, um, always, you know, fighting or I know, one time I went to the principal's office because I put a trash can over this girl's head. Um, you know, just class clown stuff. Yeah. Stupid. When does substance enter into the picture? Well, I'm building to that. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so, uh, I'm always in the office and there's this teacher that, you know, he he comes in. Uh, we called him Coach. And uh, we developed a pretty good relationship, you know. Um, he really was just he tried to mentor me. And so uh, the relationship developed and eventually I talked to my grandmother and I, and, um, I convinced her in so many words that um, it would be best if I moved in with him, you know, it'd be less of a financial burden on her. This is one of your teachers? <sighs> one of my school teachers, yeah. Okay. So I think I was 13 at the time. Okay. Um, and he's offering for you to come stay with him. Yeah. So, uh, he was single, never been married, no kids. Uh, I think he's 45 or something, you know. Um, but it was awesome. You know, we, I really cared about the guy. Um, we had a good relationship. Um, but this is, you know, this is kind of, I don't want to blame him so much for introducing me to drugs and alcohol. Cause I think I would have done it anyway. Right. But it was just like, it's a perfect opportunity for me because, you know, like he would buy me weed and he would buy me alcohol and he would 
um, let me smoke when I wanted to, you know. I pretty much had the freedom to do whatever I wanted to do. I could have girls come stay the night, um, you know, so being in junior high and high school, uh, all my friends, they had curfews and, you know, they had parents they had to listen to and structure. And I could still do whatever the hell I wanted to do, you know. Um, I thought it was awesome. Yeah. Um, but it was during this period that I kind of started getting a taste for, uh, you know, just like, I love the feeling of drinking and smoking weed, you know? So I think, uh, just being able to do it whenever I wanted just gave me that drive, that kind of, um, discovery of addiction, you know, like I wanted it all the time as much as I could get, you know, I wanted to smoke the most, drink the most, stay up the most days, you know, just, I wanted to party the hardest. Felt like it was something that you were good at. Yeah, I was, you know, I'm naturally competitive in all things. And so this was just one more area that I could excel at. You know, I could be, yeah. you know, the I could be the best at this. Yeah. And so that was kind of my new outlook. It's like I wanted to be the best drug addict. And so um, I'd gotten a kidney stone one time, I think when I was 15. And the doctor prescribed me Lortabs. Okay. And so this kind of opened up. Uh, my world to pills, you know, I started um, becoming curious about that. Like, you know, if Lord tabs are so good, what else is out there? Yeah. And uh, one day I get a call from one of my friends and uh, he tells me not to go to school. He's like, you know, skip school today. Come by the house. I got something to show you. I was like, okay. So I go over to his house and he's got this like um, fireproof suitcase mm. um, or it's more like a safe, you know, cause it's got a lock on it, but uh, he opens it up and he's just got like 10,000 Oxycontin pills, you know, and I didn't know what Oxycontin was. And even when I first, we first started doing them, you know, like they were so strong that I was, I didn't really like him because I was always throwing up, you know, yeah. falling asleep on myself. But um, eventually got to where I built a little tolerance and I could enjoy the high. And so, um, you know, that really became all I cared about was making sure I had some kind of pills to take. You know, that was, opiates was my first love. <clears throat> and then, uh, you know, of course, once all the pills were gone and I started having to uh, pay for them myself, um, I learned that if you shoot them, you could do less and get a bigger bang. You know, it was more efficient. So uh, that was my introduction to um, using a needle. Wow. Um, shooting Roxy's. So then after I fell in love with the needle, uh, it was the same, um, you know, the same kind of thinking like, well, I want to explore everything about this. You know, what can I put in a spoon? What's water soluble? What can I break down so I can stick it in my vein? And 
that led me to um, heroin. So then uh, heroin is really when things started to go south. Yeah. Um, I'd gotten kicked out of school at this point. Um, I moved back uh, to Wichita to... How old are you at this point? So basically from the time I was 13, you know, when I moved in with Coach uh, Coach Weinfield, um, to the time I was about 17, you know, um, everything went south and I kind of got expelled from school. You know, so when I was, I think it was my junior year, I got expelled. So after that, I didn't want to go back to school. You know, I just wanted to chase drugs around. Um, so I think that, you know, there's just like a lot of um, couch hopping. I remember one time I went all the way down to Florida to try to run away from my problems. Uh, didn't work. Um, came back to Oklahoma. Anyway, pretty much my grandmother was the only one who wanted anything to do with me. And she had told me that she was still living in Claremore, but she wanted to retire. So she was going to move back to Wichita. And she's like, well, I could go with her if I wanted. Um, so I, I chose to do that. Um, so once I moved with her back to Wichita, I also had the pan- or the opportunity to kind of move back in with my mom yeah. and kind of build a relationship with her. And... Um, same with my brothers, you know, they, they lived with her still. So it was like this opportunity I had to kind of reunite with all three of them. Um, cause they were living in a trailer. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, my mom, my two brothers and her mother, my grandma Lois. <sighs> so, uh, I'm moving with them, you know, I'm sleeping on the floor in the living room. just kind of being a bum. Uh, you know, I got this addiction. Yeah. And so my mom, you know, she's a drug addict as well. So we just kind of paired up, you know, and just started getting high together. Um, I feel like she treated me more like a boyfriend than she did a son. You know, it's because we was always fighting about, you know, who's going to get us high today or, you know, how are we going to come up with some money to get more drugs? And then if things weren't working, um, you know, it's like F you, F this, get out, you know, yeah. stuff like that. Um, so it was, it was like a, it was, it was a toxic relationship. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, uh, it sucked, you know, so I decided I wanted to, um, well, let's go to this part of the story. Well, Uh, before we do that, let's go ahead and take a quick break, hear a word from our Finding Hope sponsors. And then when we come back, we're going to continue down this road of Brandon's, uh, incredible story and uh, find out what it is that got him through the doors. Hope is alive. We'll see you in just a second. Is your loved one struggling with alcoholism or drug addiction? If so, Finding Hope support groups can help. Finding Hope support groups were specifically created for the loved ones of addicts and alcoholics. Through our free meetings, you'll find education, inspiration, and a community of other loved ones impacted by addiction. Each week, you will have the opportunity to learn more about addiction and find tools to help those you love. If you need help now, visit FindingHope.today. All right, Brandon. So here we are. We are back. Um, 
go ahead and just pick up where you left off. Let's just keep rolling, man. Okay, so uh, I'm in Wichita. Um, pretty much just no direction, uh, no guidance. Okay, so uh, let me real one quick and one question. How old are you at this point now? Nineteen. So you're nineteen, and up until this point, you really, with the exception of the teacher who tried to do right by you and take you in. Um, and although he did introduce you to things, you really just have had no direction in your life. Yeah. Um, my grandmother was the only one who was really right. Um, overseeing me, you know, but like she didn't have any advice to give. Yeah. Um, I remember we got AOL. Ah, yes. Uh, Aim. Yeah. So, um, just as long as I played a lot of computer games, you know, Age of Empires. Um, but she pretty much let me do whatever I wanted to do. Cause I remember we got AOL and she, she was like, okay, uh, this is when I was 11, mind you. Yeah. She's like, um, you can pick out whatever, you know, email address you want. And for some reason I picked out, um, Junkies R Us at AOL.com. Wow. I still have that email address to this day. But at the time, I hadn't even done drugs yet. You know, so I just wonder, like, what is the significance of that? You know, why did I pick that? Yeah. Maybe I had already predetermined that I was going to be like my parents or I don't know. But the illustration is just to um, show that, you know, my grandmother, she... She didn't go left or right. You know, she just let me do what I want. Um, she provided a roof over my head and we lived off the dollar menu. Yeah. You know, so that was that. Um, so now you're in Wichita. Yeah. And uh, I link up with this guy and, you know, we're pretty much, we go out during the day panhandling, uh, chasing heroin. Um I'm driving one day, um, one of my best friends overdosed and you know, there's a sequence of events, but anyway, I'm withdrawn from heroin and, um, this funeral is like in a few hours and I'm trying to get some sleep. So I go get this can of air duster. My intentions were to huff the air duster, uh, get some sleep, you know, cause it makes you pass out. But I go to Walmart and get the can air duster. I start huffing it as I'm driving home, you know. So uh, I actually passed out behind the wheel, um, crashed my car in the side of somebody's house. Jeez. Yeah. So I got life flighted to uh, St. Francis. Um, spent 10 days in the ICU. Um, ended up in a wheelchair, broke yeah. both my legs, you know. Uh, but even then, you know, that wasn't enough to make me want to stop using drugs and alcohol. Um, I missed the funeral, of course. But once I went back to Wichita, I had, uh, you know, I, I just had my partner. He would push me around in my wheelchair from quick trip to quick trip. And, uh, you know, I'd panhandle and just hold a cardboard sign. And people would give me bukus of money, you know, because I got these two casts on my legs and I'm in a wheelchair. And, you know, I look like I really need help. But, you know, all the money they're giving me is going straight to drugs. Uh, you know, so this is about the time hopelessness starts to set in. 
And uh, I decided I want to make a change. I want to get off the heroin. So I start going to the uh, methadone clinic. And uh, that was okay. You know, the methadone clinic is pretty cool because... I could go get my dose in the morning Mm -hmm. and then I could focus on other things throughout the day. Yeah. So I actually worked as a door to door salesman for AT&T for a while. You know, I'd just go get some methadone in the morning and then, uh, and then, um, you know, I could work throughout the day. And, uh, it was during this time though, that I met my ex-wife, uh, things got pretty toxic pretty fast you know uh, she was a drug addict and alcoholic and um, you know I was a drug addict and alcoholic so pretty much as soon as we met uh, we moved in together and um, it became dysfunctional yeah really fast uh, I couldn't keep a job um, you know and she didn't work and so uh, she had this idea um, that we would uh, sell drugs to pay our bills. And so she had a brother. Um, he knew how to make meth. Wow. And I had never done meth before. Um, but, you know, her idea was that she was going to have him come over and, you know, teach me how to, they call it shake and bake. Mm-hmm. Pretty simple. Um, you know, he came over, taught me how to do it. Uh the game plan was to make all this meth and sell it, and we, you know, we pay our bills that way. Um, but that's not how it went. Never does. Never. So we pretty much just hung out in the kitchen, shaking bottles and shooting dope, you know. Um, once I got my first shot of dope, you know, that's pretty much, that was like the greatest thing that ever happened to me, you know. Um, I never felt anything like it. But... Uh, it also invited in so many demons that I had no idea were out there, you know, just it slowly turned me insane. Yeah. You know, the, the lack of sleep, the paranoia, the voices, um, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's unexplainable. Yeah. You know what med does to us, but that's all I wanted. That was, that was my whole goal was just to stay high on meth every day, all day. Um, you know, I couldn't keep a job. Um, kept going to jail for different reasons. Um, we eventually had three kids together, three daughters, uh, Blakely, Sonny, and uh, Aniston. Um, her being pregnant kept her sober throughout our relationship. I think we were together five years. But as soon as we had our third child, she got her tubes tied and, you know, she just kind of flew off the handle. Um, She'd be out drinking all night, you know, doing dope, stopped coming home. Um, And it just got to be miserable, you know, because here you got two people using meth and drinking alcohol and you got these three kids who are suffering. Uh, so basically I just, I left, you know, I left them to fend for themselves. Um, started staying in hotels, um, selling meth to uh, support my own habit. Um, 
I come across this opportunity uh, where I could sell or uh, throw cell phones over the fence at this um, prison, the J. Davis Correctional Facility. Um, and they would give us an ounce of dope, you know. So every Sunday, about 2 o'clock in the morning, I would drive down there. I had a partner. His name was Sonny. Um, you know, we'd throw these cell phones over the fence and get this meth. You know, we'd go sell some, do some, and just live in hotels. Well, eventually, you know, um, I get indicted by the feds. Uh, go to prison. Um, and I feel like, I feel like that was God, you know, I, pulling me out of the situation I was in. Um, because while I was in prison, you know, I was able to gain clarity. Um, I was able to get away from the meth, get my mind back, um, and start realizing like, you know, I'm running out of opportunities here. I'm running out of chances. Yeah. Running uh, out of time. Yeah. You know, um, and, you know, that reminds me of something just to interject, you know, on your point. A lot of us hit that point when we're kind of coming towards our rock bottom and you kind of start to realize, like, for me, I got sober this last time when I was 29. I'm 33 now. But I had been living my 20s. I didn't realize this till I got sober. But I had been living my 20s like this was, I was kind of at the end of my life. Because in the back of my mind, I think I knew that there's no way I could, you know, keep this going for too long. And so I remember when I got sober at 29 feeling like, huh, I, my mom, you know, I remember my mom asking me, you know, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I was like, I don't know. I, I didn't really think I'd be around past this time. I hadn't really thought that far ahead because it was just years and years of me feeling like the walls were just closing in on me. Yeah. Um, you know, throughout my life, there'd be different times where people would try to, um, you know, uh, point me in the direction of either, you know, church or 12 steps or, you know, just some kind of positive influence or guidance. And I was just never ready you know i always thought that i could find a way where i could use drugs and alcohol and live a normal life you know i thought i was going to be the one that could figure it out you're special yes you know highly capable um everybody else is just they've got the problem not you straight up but um i think you know there wasn't any kind of Nothing was going to make me quit. You know, I didn't ever want to quit. I was always going to find a way. Yeah. But it wasn't until I received um, my gift of desperation, as we call it in the recovery world. Uh, you know, with with meth, you know, I was talking about insanity, you know. So it was, it was through a bout of psychosis where I was given um, an ample amount of fear. Um to make me desperate enough to where I wanted to change, you know, um, without going through the whole story. Um, I was pretty much hearing voices, um, running from people who weren't there, you know, um, just losing my mind. Yeah. And 
uh, ended up in jail again, of course, throw me in the drunk tank. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just remember being so afraid. Um, and that's kind of finally when, um, you know, I, I didn't have anybody to turn to. I had burned all my bridges. Uh, you know, nobody was going to pick up the phone when I called him from the jail. Yeah. And so maybe this is a problem. Yeah. So that's, this is the moment where I really cried out to God. I was like, you know, please help me. I will do whatever it takes. So I love that because again, something similar that happened to me and I've talked to a lot of people on the show about this. It's like, it's one thing to reach out to God when you're in jail. Cause I've been to jail several times as well and done the whole, if you get me out of this, I swear I'll never blah, blah, blah again. It's a whole nother thing just to say, I just want help. Yeah. I don't know what that looks like. I <clears throat> like, yeah, my prayer was not, I was not worried about getting out of jail. I was worried about dying. Right. You know, maybe jail's so where you needed to be straight up. And so that's, you know, once I did go to prison, <clears throat> um, it granted me that, that time of healing, you know, where yeah. I could really just get away from everything you know, um, get my health, get my mind, uh, just kind of prepare myself for, um, you know, digging myself out of this hole that I've, you know, kind of put myself in. So the, uh, the first time I get out of prison, um, you know, my probation officer, he's like, well, just as long as you pass your UAs, um, it's fine if you drink alcohol. And so, you know, I was thinking like, gosh, hell yeah, it's going to be easy. It's the worst yeah. thing. <laughs> I don't know why. I guess. Well, they don't, it, it's different. You know, It is different. It's, they don't know. So. So just replacing one thing with another. Right. I love drinking. Sure. Because it makes you feel different. So I get a general labor job at this fence company. Um, get my own place. Um, and I'm just drinking every day, you know carry a backpack around me and I would always buy uh, Canadian mist. I'm not, not pl- proud to say I've had my fair share of that, but don't have to live that way anymore. Yeah. Um, and you know, I thought because I was um, not throwing up or, you know, just because I could still work a job and have my own stuff that, um, you know, I was functioning, you know, it was going to be all right. It was sustainable, but I made it about 10 months before I eventually, you know, went back to using meth. Because it's a certain point, this thing you've grabbed to replace that with just isn't enough. Yeah. The alcohol, it does, the alcohol stops working, you know, so then you need something a little bit stronger. You just Um, want what you really want. Yeah. You need the good stuff. None of that wimpy skull. Did you just quote Joe Dirt? Well, I didn't want to say, yeah. <laughs> Love that movie. That's a great movie. Uh, so just fast forward in here a little bit. Um, what is it? Is this the point now when it's time to really get it together or? Yeah. So um, I ended up failing a bunch of drug tests and uh, my probation officer is like, well, you know, come check yourself into jail. You, we're going to give you two weeks in the county jail and we're going to send you to treatment. Um, 
But when it comes time to turn myself in, you know, I get super hammered drunk. End up catching a DUI. Oh, no. So, yeah. Did you showed up to jail drunk? I didn't even make it. You know, I got so drunk, I couldn't find my way to, to the jail <laughs> to check in. You know, so I get pulled over. I actually ran into the back of this lady. Oh, no. You know, oh, so I, man. Yeah, I catch fresh charges while I'm on probation. So on your way, so I have this right, on your way to turn yourself into jail for failing drug tests, you catch a DUI. Well. Or was it just during that day? I, I tried to summarize it, but I'll just tell you how it happened. Okay, so my probation officer calls me on Monday, mm-hmm. tells me to check in Friday. Okay. You know, I had done lost my job at this point, um, but I'm still using meth and drinking. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, I, I got five days of good, solid substance use. You know, I'm going to just get spun out and drink as much as I can uh-huh. every day up until the time it's, it's time to check in. So, uh, you know, sure enough, uh, Friday gets here and it's time to go turn myself in. So I think I had like, um, I started off with a half gallon of Kentucky deluxe, you know, and I was pretty much drinking that all through the night into the next day. And then, you know, it's time to go turn myself in. So I just chug what's left in the bottle, you know? Okay. So I'm just really trying to prime the tank. So when I go turn myself in, you know, I want to make sure I'm maxed out. Sure. But I'm driving from Claremore to Tulsa. So by the time I get to Tulsa, I'm pretty much um, dysfunctional, you know. Uh-huh. Um, I kept driving around this block looking for the jail, and I can't find it. You know, I'm, I'm having trouble figuring out how to use my GPS and whatever. So my probation officer actually calls me. He's like, hey, man, you know, you're running out of time. Where are you at? Excuse me. And uh, I tell him, like, you know, I, I messed up. You know, I need you to come get me. I can't function. Um, but he was unwilling to do that. You know, he told me to park my car and have somebody come get me. And that we would try again on Monday. So, you know, I hang up. And um, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, so I got Friday, Saturday, and Sunday now. Let's go party some more. I'm going to mm-hmm. get, uh, get some more dope, get some more liquor, and I'll just try again on Monday. Uh, so it was actually when I was flying back to my house, I was going like 110 down the uh, turnpike, you know, just trying to get home so I could, uh, you know, I had some dope left. I wanted to smoke. Um, but as I get off on this exit ramp and uh I was going too fast and hit this lady. Okay. So that's kind of the sequence of events of that. But anyway, um, so I get put in jail. Um, you know, they give me like five different charges, like DUI, um, possession of, uh, no, 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 excuse me, open container, mm-hmm. uh, reckless driving. Um, I forget what the other ones are. Anyway, they put me in the drunk tank, and I'm pretty much defeated at this point, you know, because I'm already on federal probation. Catch them fresh state charges, uh, third DUI, and I'm thinking like, damn, you know. No, the walls are closing in. Yeah, I'm going to go to prison for a while this time, you know. And so uh, I pass out. Next day the guard comes in. He's like, uh, howling, bunking junk. And you know, so I'm getting up. 
uh, I go to the front desk and I'm thinking somebody bonded me out. So I go up there and I'm like, yeah, um, yo, do you mind telling me who bonded me out? And, um, he's like, well, the arresting officer, um, he made a mistake when he was putting your charges in. And so the judge had to throw it out, you know, so you're free to go. And I was like, hell, you know, that's never happened before. Yeah. So, uh, you know, put my clothes on, uh, walk out of the jail, head straight to the liquor store, buy a pint of vodka, and went to the dope house to get some more dope. And so, you know, I was I was powerless. Um, anyway, U.S. Marshals show up, put me in handcuffs, take me to prison. I get out of prison a second time, and I get my job back at a defense company. And uh, my probation officer saying that, hey, you know, we let you get your own place the first time. How about you do sober living this time? So I was like, okay, you know, whatever. Um, I was talking to some guys at work about it. And uh, there was a guy there named Nick. Mm. And he's like, hey, man, uh, I'm in Hope is Alive. You know, it's a, it's a faith-based sober living program. And so... Uh, kind of caught my attention yeah you know because i um i'd been praying to god you know asking for help and i felt like this was a clear sign of him trying to send me some resources some help you know so i was like okay i'll check it out um and the timing was crazy you know because i never heard of hope is alive before and so um it turns out it had only been open for a month, you know, it opened in August. I got out of prison the second time, September. The home in Claremore. Yes, the home in Claremore. Okay. So that's why I never heard about it before because it's new. It just opened. So I checked it out. You know, John Michael's program manager up there. Went and talked to him. Um, you know, uh, moved in fairly quick. Um, even when I first got into the program, you know, I had, uh, I had a few reservations, you know. Sure. Um, my probation officer, he said that, he wanted me to uh, be in sober living for six months. Mm. You know, so that's what I was thinking. I'll just hang out for six months. Um, you know, get me uh, a car, get my driver's license reinstated, um, save up some money, and then I'll move out on my own. Um, but, you know, I, I really had nowhere to belong, you know. Um, Nothing left to lose. Exactly. Like, there's so much freedom and having nothing left to lose. The kids are gone. Uh, you know, ex-wife, she's still out using dope. And um, I ain't got no family. You know, mom, she died. Uh, basically, I had my dad and my two brothers up in Kansas mm-hmm. doing their thing. I was like, you know, I had no direction, no purpose. And so, um, you know, once I got into Hope is Alive, I realized, you know, that it was a place where I could belong, you know, I could be a part of something bigger. I than could yourself. be a part of something bigger than, yeah. yeah. So, um, as each day passed, you know, I was able to surrender a little bit more and more and more. Um, I started realizing that, um, you know, there's a whole world or a network of recovery out there that, you know, I could get, tapped into yeah. and that I could be a part of. Yeah. And, you know, I had gone through so much 
darkness in my life. You know, I had all these things that I went through and um, I started realizing like, I have an opportunity here where I can use that. And, you know, I can use that to make a connection to other people who are going through similar things Yeah, and just kind of use it as a tool, um, you know, to bring hope. Like, you know, yeah. look, I've been through some things and um, there was a time in my life where I was pretty hopeless. But Give back what was given to you. 12 step. Yep. Yeah. I heard somebody say once uh, early on in my recovery, <clears throat> they said, you know, in our addiction, we're willing to give up everything for this one thing, which is substance. Yeah. And today in recovery, we give up that one thing and we get everything. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great way to put it. I mean, for the, I never imagined that there'd ever be a time in my life where um, I would be okay with not using drugs and alcohol. Yeah, you know, I, th- I thought for sure. I had just assumed that's that, that's how it was always going to be. Right. You know, and today, that's not the case. You know, I have a good relationship with God, and uh, you know He's using me in big ways. And how and, much sobriety do you have now? Um, 16 months. Come on. Yeah. So that's pretty crazy. And I, I knew you had over a year cause your, your picture is still on my phone somewhere. Yeah. So I'm trying to hit that 18 month mark. That's my next chip. Yeah, man. Um, just keep, you got this. Just keep going. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to be alive. Um, but yeah, God is using me in big ways and I'm excited to see, you know, what he's going to do in my future. Absolutely. Um, you know, I got nobody I know today is my blood, you know, yeah. like all the relationships I have are just strictly from the recovery network, you know, but it's like, absolutely. The life I live today is full. Yeah. You know, I'm happy. Um, my heart is, is whole. It's awesome. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for joining us today on the Hope Dealers podcast. We'll definitely have to have you back soon um, for season two when we get the video going. Yeah. There's so much more I want to dive into with you. Thank you, the listeners, so much for listening today. If this is your first time listening to the Hope Dealers podcast, please make sure you subscribe so you uh, get updated on every new episode that comes out every Thursday. And please be sure to share this with somebody who you think may need to hear it because you never know who's listening. We will see you again next time. This is the Hope Dealers Podcast. A new place, a new home for a while. Let me feel alive. Nothing to hold me back. Take my time. Just enjoy the ride. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hope Dealers Podcast. If you or someone you know needs to get in touch with Hope is Alive, or maybe you just want some more information, please visit hopeisalive.net or call 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. That's 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel.